we've been uh, reflecting on metta, loving kindness, or this basic goodness, and trying to uh, develop our confidence that there is some something trustworthy, something beautiful, something capable of responding to the present moment in uh, both a functional but also a beautiful way that's accessible. In a sense, it's our birthright. No one can really take away that possibility. I was telling some stories, I think it must have been in the Buddhist studies class, about uh, the different realms of existence. And there's a story about once the Buddha, before he was a Buddha in a previous life, was in a hell realm, really one of the difficult, difficult places. And uh, they were, you know, trudging through the fires of hell or something like that, pulling something really heavy. Um, and the person he was with <coughs> fell or something like that. And the Buddha went to help the person. And because in that moment, having a moment of compassion, of caring, it's like there, he couldn't be in hell anymore. right? So he immediately was transported to another realm. We can only be in hell for as long as our mind is willing to maintain profound states of aversion or hatred or fear. But if for whatever reason the mind leaves that state of mind, then you're not in hell anymore. And we want to have this kind of faith that no matter what the depth of hell we're in in any given moment, that that experience of hell is a conditioned state. It's there because of certain causes and conditions and when those causes and conditions aren't there anymore, then something changes. There's this very, I think, powerful beginning to the collection of verses called the Dhammapada. I'll just read a few of these short stanzas. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, you could say a kindly mind, and happiness follows like a never departed, departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. And for, for me, this is <clears throat> the birthplace of understanding of loving-kindness or this basic goodness. It really comes directly. It's not so much that uh, we stumble upon it. It's that the mind really gets that hatred leads to hatred. It always leads to hatred. It never makes sense. And it's a cause for the mind to see what else there is, basically.
the absence of hatred, we could say. Some of you have heard me read this before, but this is, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote something a couple weeks after 9-11, and as the country was talking about a strike against terror, like how to strike back. You hit, you hit us, we'll hit you. So he, that's the name of this article, Strike Against Terror. Terror is in the human heart. We must remove this terror from the heart. Destroying the human heart, both physically and psychologically, is what we should avoid. The root of terrorism should not be identified so that it can be removed. I'm sorry, the root of terrorism should be identified so that it can be removed. The root of terrorism is misunderstanding, hatred, and violence. This root cannot be located by the military. Bombs and missiles cannot reach it, let alone destroy it. Only with the practice of calming and looking deeply can our insight reveal and identify this root. Only with the practice of deep listening and compassion can it be transformed and removed. Darkness cannot be dissipated with more darkness. More darkness will make darkness thicker. Only light dissipates darkness. Violence and hatred cannot be removed with violence and hatred. Rather, this will make violence and hatred grow a thousand time, a thousandfold. Only understanding and compassion can dissolve violence and hatred. Strike against terror is a misleading expression. What we are striking against is not the real cause or the root of terror. The object of our strike is still human life. We are sowing seeds of violence as we strike. Striking in this way, we will only bring about more hatred and violence into the world. This is exactly what we do not want to do. I mentioned um, in previous talks, I read an article by one of the nuns in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition, and she said the day after 9-11 that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh got a bus and uh, ordered a bus and had the bus take them all to the beach, and he made them play some kind of game of tag or something like that on the beach in order to um, be able to respond to the fear and all of the other strong emotional states that they had and everybody around them had after 9-11. Not that that was going to be it, you know, playing tag on the beach, but then that sort of created the space of the mind so that we could, they could look at what was going on. Once we're already caught up in aversion or fear, it's really hard to stop outside, step outside of it because it's so seductive. It just seems so appropriate. But if we change that quality, touch joy, then we can look at the pain again. But now not just from you know, that conditioned, aversive state. Hey Jim, would it help to shut that door in terms of the sound of the furnace? Or does it need to be open? It's open, so I think Oh, maybe it needs the input of air. So tonight I want to talk about 
you know, last night I talked about this quality of basic goodness that has the movement of generosity. And tonight I want to talk more about how this basic goodness is a transforming agent, a catalyst for change. And to think of it as something as powerful as anything. You know, so much of what we find unmanageable, difficult, painful, terrible in life is our construction, our constructed notions, our ideas about things. And I'm sure you've noticed already that when loving kindness comes in, not a pretend or an idealistic kind of loving kindness, but an actual experience of tenderness or warmth, an actual experience of connection, our whole world changes. It's like whatever view we had that was based on a sense of alienation or separation or fear or need, that world can't be put together with the foundation of loving kindness or basic goodness. A different world has to be put together. This is something we can actually track in our practice. You know, when the moment is feeling really narrow and tight and difficult, we can trace back to the view, the sort of foundation of that experience. Oh, this sense of feeling really cold and alone and reactive or whatever it is, it comes out of this particular view. And then in other moments when we feel experiencing life in a very different way, we feel like we belong, we feel loving, we feel like we can include, that we can connect. And we have the sense to trace back and see the attitude. We see it's a very different view. a little teaching from Achan Chah in his book, A Tree in the Forest. It's just a paragraph called Thorn. All things are just as they are. They don't cause suffering to anybody. It's just like a thorn, a really sharp thorn. Does it make you suffer? No, it's just a thorn. It doesn't bother anybody. But if you go and stand on it, you'll suffer. Why is there suffering? Because you stepped on the thorn. The thorn is just minding its own business. It doesn't harm anybody. It's because of we ourselves that there's pain. Form, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. So this is these are the five aggregates of the mind and body. Form, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness. All the things in this world are simply as they are. It is we who pick fights with them. If we hit them, they hit us back. If they are left alone, they won't bother anybody. Only the drunkard gives them trouble. It gives us a perspective on aversion. You know how the mind, in a very real sense, is going out and making trouble with some aspect of experience. We think, like I've got a little stomach ache, you know, we think that that stomach ache is giving me a problem or causing me a problem. But it's the mind not liking it. You know, the mind, in a sense, 
attacks that yucky feeling. The yucky feeling is just that. It's just that yucky feeling. So one way to think about this basic goodness is it's what liberates the mind from its fixed view. And specifically, it's fixed view that unpleasantness is a problem. It's like a different way to relate to unpleasantness, the inevitable unpleasantness of aging, the inevitable unpleasantness of relationships. Not that aging is always unpleasant or relationships are always unpleasant, but there are times when they're unpleasant. The inevitable unpleasantness of having to feed ourselves. This is such a poignant place, you know, when we are meeting difficult experience, whatever it might be, frustration with the practice or boredom, wanting to be home, And even something that's, you know, more clearly dangerous, like some illness or some job loss. So, you know, in those cases, there's definitely, there is definitely something that's arisen in our life that in a sense is demanding attention and a response. It feels so appropriate that that response include aversion or fear. So that's that you know, very poignant place we find ourselves in a lot when we meet difficult experience. That often difficult experience, that particular situation, is asking for a response. But we misinterpret it. We misinterpret the situation when we think that it's asking for aversion, that somehow aversion is a sane response. Fear and aversion is the sane response to difficulty. I mean, it's understandable. Definitely we should forgive ourselves. We should understand if out of habit we respond with aversion or fear. But we can see, and and we probably have over and over again, it's not saying. It doesn't help to respond to unpleasantness, whether it's extreme or ordinary unpleasantness, with fear and aversion. But not responding with fear and aversion doesn't mean we don't respond. And that's that the other half of that misunderstanding. You know, the first half is we assume we should respond with fear and aversion. And then to the degree we begin to understand that fear and aversion is inappropriate, we misunderstand and feel there's no, I can't respond. If I can't be a fearful or aversive, the only other thing I know is, you know, just basically to be frozen or paralyzed or just to, let it happen, whatever the difficult experience is. And this is where compassion and loving kindness and this basic goodness comes in. It, it breaks that paralyzed, like either that reflexive response of fear and aversion, or the opposite of that, which is also fear and aversion, like the fear aversion of acting 
you know, fear of aversion, a fear and aversion. So we just sort of are there in the unpleasant situation, but not responding creatively, not responding with compassion. So it, it basically gives us another life, you know, a different view and a different reality and a different life where we can actually engage difficult experience without creating, setting in motion more difficult experience because of our aversion and our fear. In other words, this basic goodness allows us to be a human being with a human life, which is, you know, has its share of difficult experience. And we can live it. We can live this life. We can deal with the difficult experiences that inevitably come our way without feeling like we don't have a strategy. We do now. Ran into, maybe somebody sent me this. Um, maybe it was Katie Keefe sent it to me for the Buddhist studies class. It's this nice article by Sylvia Burstein called No Blame. I'm going to read a little bit for, for us. <clears throat> the instinctive, immediate response to our own fear is assigning blame to the presumed source. Blame is probably an adaptive response to situations of immediate physical jeopardy in which there is no time for reflection. Even in situations where there is no immediate peril, Directing anger at whomever or whatever frightens us is more acceptable to the ego than helplessness and despair. It's like when we're experiencing pain, and this is such an interesting thing, somehow it feels better if we strike back. It's like even when it has absolutely nothing to do with the person we're striking back at. I mean, how many of us have lashed out at our partners or friends, even though the pain we're feeling doesn't really have anything to do with them, anything they've done. Maybe it's from work, you know, and then later. But we take it out. I mean, this is a, a classic thing we do. Terrible things happen in this world, and people do them. Aren't there culprits, villains, who can be blamed? And she goes on to tell about a story. Um, Sylvia, I think she's a, trained as a psychologist, or certainly a therapist and, and probably a psychologist. And uh, she had to take a course recognizing signs of child abuse. She talks about how they were watching slideshows and uh, the whole audience, you know, wincing at the... Uh, pictures of the terrible, terrible abuse that happened for these ch toward these children. And finally, the lecturer started to talk about what you could do. And this is what she said. Um, so she said, when it becomes clear that the agency will need to take custody of the child in order to protect it, I say to the parent, I know that in your heart of hearts, you want to be a good parent to your child. And I know that it's been very hard for you to take care of her at this time in your life. We're going to help you. You'll need to leave her with us until you get strong enough to care for her yourself. Let's go down the hall together and I'll introduce you to the people who will make good arrangements for her. 
You carry the baby, baby and we'll go together. And then people are a little bit stunned by this woman's response because they were feeling you know, that the people who do these things to children must be terrible people, must be evil and should be blamed. And they asked her, you know, don't you blame them? And she said, it's not their fault. Almost all of them were abused themselves. Many of them have substance addictions. Their lives are not working. They see nothing but long, empty futures stretching out ahead of them. And then on top of everything, a crying child. They can't do it another way. There is no point in blaming. And Sylvia adds, Can anyone ever do it another way? Is there ever anyone to blame? In the Buddhist tradition, uh, one of the Buddhist saints, Shantideva, talks about how, you know, if you get beaten by a stick, you don't blame the stick. In the same way, we could say you don't blame the person because that person, you know, what are they if not just something that's being acted upon? This body and mind is being has been conditioned by other forces, other patterns. In the same way that the stick is being acted on, this body and mind has been acted on. Now, I don't mean to say that in terms of society or in terms of how we organize ourselves that there aren't consequences for behavior. I'm really talking about the attitude we have about ourselves when we do something unskillful or others when they do things that are unskillful. How, you know, to really look how we justify aversion and hate, blame, Fear, how appropriate it feels to go there. She ends a short little essay with this statement. She says, I often think, this is Sylvia Borstein, I often think of the familiar image of an infant left in a basket on a doorstep with a note pinned to its blanket, please take care of me. The natural impulse for all of us would be to pick up the baby uh, to pick the baby up, to care for it. I try to think about the world as they have, think about the world as an abandoned baby left in dire straits by parents who could not care for it well. Could we be the benevolent agents who pick it up and without blaming, take care of it? And earlier she has this nice line, this would leave us without human en enemies only confused people needing help. You could just imagine that that was our attitude toward ourselves and others, you know. How many times was there a frightened little baby that needed to be picked up and taken care of today, you know, just talking, just referring to our own state of mind, our own state of body, or somebody else's state of mind, somebody else's situation. And, uh, you know, metta has this, uh, in the Buddhist text, it's described as water that knows how to fill any particular vessel that it's poured into. And then when we abandon aversion and we're, in a sense, established in this basic goodness, you might find that 
you, that the heart, the body and mind, that it responds appropriately. You know, it knows just how to pick up that particular baby. It knows when the baby needs to be picked up and when things need to be left alone and everything in between. We each have our own particular dose of difficulty in our life. And it uh, doesn't really <clears throat> do any good to compare our particular amount of difficulty to somebody else's difficulty. The question is, what are we going to do with the difficulty that we face in our life? Are we going to take the well-worn path of aversion because it seems to make sense to be averse or are we going to try something else? I want to share a little bit from some of Ajahn Sumedho's teachings about this something else, this trying something else. I really find how he talks about loving-kindness practice really useful because he emphasizes the point over and over again about uh, not falling into idealistic notions of loving-kindness, which just ends up being another should. You know, we should be kind to one another. We shouldn't be averse. But remember, loving-kindness has this innate ability to care for the moment. So when we are averse, when we are being hateful, Loving-kindness expresses itself by knowing how to care for that self-hatred or for that fear or for that aversion, how to include it. This is, <laughs> talks about when he first arrived in England and how people were not so interested in loving-kindness. At other times, he talks about the English people as being, I don't know if he was referring to all of them, but tend to be critical and thus tend not to like metta practice. <laughs> so he says, this is uh, in the book, The Mind in the Way, and there's a chapter called The Way of Loving Kindness. Metta or loving kindness is a skillful means that we can use to approach things that we find annoying or unpleasant in ourselves and our surroundings. When I first came to England, I asked people, do you practice metta? And they said, oh, I can't stand it. <laughs> so I asked, what do you think it is? And they said, well, it's that kind of swarmy, swarmy whitewashing of your mind where you say you love absolutely everything. You're supposed to try to convince yourself that you love your enemies and that you love yourself. Can you imagine spending an hour just thinking about how you love yourself? So he goes on to talk about how, you know, that tendency to be idealistic about loving kindness, and it, it becomes a stance that we have. It's like we're afraid, we're a frightened beast, we're looking for solid ground, we run into something difficult, and uh, aversion hasn't worked, so we think, I should be loving, I should be kind, I should be forgiving. but. It's really coming out of fear. It's really an expression of fear and aversion. We want to control the situation by 
fitting some idea that we have about love or about um, basic goodness. This is from uh, a collection of essays called uh, Voices of Insight. And Arjun Sumedho had an article in there called Nothing is Left Out. What often confuses us in practicing metta is our idealistic concepts of what we should be. For example, some of you might think, I shouldn't want revenge for the victimizers. Ajahn Sumedho says I should have metta for them. And then you might feel, no, I can't include everyone, it's too hard. I can have metta for everyone else, but not that totally hateful person. What can be done in that moment is to have metta for that very feeling, finding an attitude of kindness rather than criticism, knowing it for what it is, not indulging or repressing it, but simply being patient with that particular state as it is in the present moment. And he's referring, if you didn't catch catch it, he's referring to that particular mind state that says, I can't have loving kindness for that hateful person. That's what we can have metaphor. And this is really relevant on retreat because, you know, after a while, we realize, whether it's our first retreat or our hundredth retreat, eventually we realize that we're never going to live up to this idea we have about you know, the perfect Buddhist practitioner who's glowing with kindness and compassion and the mind is perfectly calm and still and walks without really touching the ground and has a certain litheness as they move about and eats food in such a composed, graceful way. Smells good. <laughs> you know, we have these, the, you know, it's, it comes from these uh, images of angels and angelic creatures. And we tend, not just with Buddhism, but we tend with any spiritual endeavor, because of our cultural condition, we tend to translate whatever we hear, regardless of what we hear, we tend to translate it into some transcendent, ethereal quality. Something that's inhuman. Because how could what I'm looking for be human? <laughs> because we just associate like being a human being, having gas, having relationships, having difficulty. We just assume that that's, I need to get out of this. The whole point of spiritual practice is to get away from this. So he's saying that... That's exactly what we can start having metaphor, like creating a little bit of space for not being able to live up to the ideals we have about our practice. You know, we have a so-called lousy sit or a lousy retreat, lousy life, and we can have some space for that. We can allow that to be. He goes on, he says, if we actually practice this, what is the result? In my experience, I find that I'm no longer making problems for myself around my faults and weaknesses. I'm not hating myself continuously for not being able to live up to my high ideals of what I should be. I am able to bear with some of the emotions and reactions I have rather than just being caught up in aversion. 
to myself. When we do this, those negative reactions fade out. We no longer, we are no longer making a karmic connection to them. We are letting them go rather than getting entangled with them. So there is a feeling of greater ease. We are developing a proper attitude toward ourselves. So much of the real work in our life is learning to not feed the uh, negative habit patterns. It's not about becoming a perfect person. It's about deciding to no longer feed aversion, the patterns of aversion or the patterns of fear. And how do we feed them? I mean, you know, everybody knows this. We feed them by taking the pattern personally. It's the process of identification and attachment that reignites that pattern, creates a deeper groove. It's more likely to arise, and when it arises, it's more likely to be believed as self, to be taken as self. But every time we have the inclination to hate, now the, the feeling, the inclination is already there. So to hate that makes no sense whatsoever. If we're feeling the inclination to hate, but we're not uh, getting identified with it so that we're proliferating around it or acting on it, then we're already doing all that we can do. Not picking it up is the act, action of kindness. So when you're sitting next to somebody tomorrow at breakfast and the way they're cracking their boiled egg is bothering you, because it's not the way you learned, or something like that. And uh, you're there feeling that irritation or that aversion. You know, we can practice metta right with that feeling. It's not like I can't practice metta, or practicing metta means getting rid of the aversion. It means not acting on the aversion, not feeling like you have to do anything with that yucky feeling. It's creating the space for there to be that yucky feeling because it's already there. But now we're creating a space where nothing else has to happen. There can just be the aversion. We don't have to add anything to it, like define like why I'm bad for having aversion. I shouldn't be upset by the way somebody cracks their egg or really thinking something's wrong with that person. You know, here I am modeling how to do it. Can't you <laughs> take the cues? If you, lest you think you're the one, <laughs> there is no one. <laughs> but I noticed today when I was cracking my egg that I, I just noticed like a lot of people had cool ways to do it. <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> I don't really think my way was wrong. It seemed to work. They really peeled well today. I don't <laughs> you didn't need a clever strategy to do a good job today. But in any case, it's, it's really telling how we get ourselves into these little pickles around uh, you know, just being frustrated or irritated, uncomfortable, and wanting to lash out and to restrain, to refrain from that can be exactly the expression. This is what love looks like. It knows better. It knows how to not pick up the thing that's red hot. Honey, don't pick it up. I know it looks like you should pick it up, but I'm telling you, don't pick it up. 
in this same book, Ajahn Chah tells another story um, of uh, somebody who's just had an operation and ha- hasn't been able to drink for a couple of days because of the operation and now is coming out of it and is really thirsty. And uh, the person says, well, the water looks good, it smells good, and it tastes good, but if you drink it, you're going to get really sick. You know, and yet we take it and he tastes it and tastes great, he just drinks, and then he gets really sick. And this is the thing with aversion. You know, it makes so much sense to pick it up. It feels so good when we start to think about it, when we start to act on it. It just feels appropriate. We feel enlivened by it. The Buddha calls it murderously sweet, that feeling, because it is enlivening. The sense of self feels like it has a purpose. And one of the, the things that's so disconcerting in our life is we construct a sense of self, but we have this deep, unconscious intuition that it's not what we imagine it to be. So we're so grateful when something that's murderously sweet comes along, because all of a sudden, the sense of self actually feels real. And then that sort of strange, subtle, unconscious feeling that it's not what we imagine it is goes away for a little bit, because we're so intoxicated, anger lets us be so intoxicated with self. Same with, you know, attachment to beautiful experiences. That can also help us feel intoxicated with self. This is, uh, again, from Ajahn Sumedho, talking about his own versions of self-hatred. When I was newly ordained, I thought of myself as a very good-natured person who wasn't very angry and didn't hate people. But after ordination, when I started meditating, I began to feel vast amounts of hatred for everybody. (laughs) Sound familiar? And I thought, this meditation is making me into a demon. I had thought, I'll go and meditate, live out in the jungle alone, get very calm, and be able to commune with celestial beings and stay in a high state of bliss. Instead, when I first started meditating as a novice, the first two months were nothing but unmitigated aversion. I'd hated everyone I could think of. I even hated the people I loved, and I hated myself. I began to see that this was a side of myself that had been repressed, expelled from my consciousness, by the ideal image of myself that I had tried to hold on to. I had never allowed real hatred, aversion, disappointment, or despair to be fully conscious. I had always reacted to it. So this should be an important lesson to all of us, that when we start doing this practice more wholeheartedly, inevitably we're going to have to let in everything that we haven't wanted to let in, see all that we didn't want to see. So if we're 
like really one of those people that's really afraid of stagnation, then we're going to have to face stagnation. If we're, you know, one of those people who doesn't um, doesn't like the feeling of being mistrusted by others, then somehow, some way, we have to uh, open to that experience. And it will come up. We'll either draw the experience to us or we'll manifest internally. Because what we're afraid of, what we hate, we're actually strengthening. We're kind of creating it. We have this relationship. You know, everything we're really afraid of, in order to be really afraid of it, we have to constantly be constructing that thing we're really afraid of or really angry at. It's, it has a reality as much as anything does because of this relationship of hate. So when we start to practice settling the mind down, being more present with our experience, then we get to see what has been set in motion. And this is what happens. This is why it's such a beautiful but challenging practice. Even the four-day retreats that we do here can be really intense because there we are with all of that stuff that the mind has set in motion. And it's so easy for us to blame the retreat or the teacher or the people we're on the retreat with or to blame ourselves. You know, this, this is what we want to do is we want to do more of the same. And so this is why our teachers and why we encourage ourselves to try a different way. So instead of blaming somebody for what's coming up or blaming ourselves for what's coming up, we practice being interested in it, interested with loving-kindness or interested from this place of, of uh, basic goodness. And what we find, you know, and what Ajahn Sumedho found, too, as he could be with this, it's very enlivening to allow things to move, to allow that to come up without feeding it, to have feelings of disgust for ourselves, disgust for others, and not to have to shut anything down because it's bad. I mean, we will try to shut it down. There's no doubt about it. But eventually we'll realize we can't. All we can do is let things unfold, let things move. But that's the way. A little later he says, there was resistance to them, of course, because that's the way I had always dealt with those conditions. How do I get rid of them? How can I stop them? Oh, I shouldn't be feeling like this. It's disgusting. After all they've done for me and I still hate them, these feelings made me hate myself. So instead of trying to stop them, I had to learn to accept them. And it was only through acceptance that the mind was able to go through a kind of catharsis in which all the negativity manifested and passed away. The way out of suffering, as the Buddha taught, is cessation. Freedom from suffering comes through allowing that which has arisen to cease. It's as simple as that. In order to allow anything to cease, we must not interfere with it or to try to get rid of it. We must allow it to go away. This means that we must be patient with it 
So metta is a kind so metta is also a kind of patience, a willingness to exist with unpleasant things without thinking about how awful they are, or getting caught in the desire to get rid of them immediately and expediently. This I think is a very powerful teaching. Freedom from suffering comes through allowing that which has arisen to cease. It is as simple as that. In order to allow anything to cease, we must not interfere with it or try to get rid of it. We must allow it to go away. And this is a, a different attitude. It really helps to purify our idea of basic goodness or loving kindness. Where we think of it, initially we're going to think of it as a self-centered project. How can I be kind? Not that that's even a bad question, but when that question, how can I be kind, has a neurotic, like, I'm not okay until I can be kind, then it's another self-project. So instead, we can think of kindness or this basic goodness as the space of mind, the space of heart, that allows things to arise and cease. It allows nature to arise and cease without the mind getting entangled in it. So when negativity comes, it allows that negativity to rise and to cease. And that's that statement that I read right at the beginning from the Dhammapada. Hatred doesn't cease through hatred, but through non-hatred alone does it cease. This is the eternal truth. Reacting to negativity reacting to negativity in terms of our own mind states, reacting to negativity in terms of the difficult experiences in our lives, reacting with hatred or aversion or fear leads to hatred and fear and aversion. It doesn't lead to the cessation we truly want. So really think about metta as that powerful space that can allow things to be. So when you're sitting and there's physical pain or emotional pain or despair or boredom, loneliness, think about metta or this basic goodness is what allows the heart to be right in the middle of everything, not to be afraid of it. It's a especially beautiful, I think, section from uh, Deb Anderson's book. I just read it recently, and I think it must have been a half-day retreat or day-long retreat at Common Ground. But I want to read it again because there's evidently in, in Japanese Zen practice uh, a term that's used a lot, which means soft, gentle, pliable uh, heart, so a soft heart. And this is Rev. Anderson commenting on the soft heart is the willingness to let go of your body and your mind, to let go of that fixation, to allow things to come and cease, arise and cease. So he says, how do you develop soft mind? You sit in the middle of the world of all suffering beings, which just happens to be where you are right now. Each human being is the center of the world of all suffering beings. You just sit in your place with your suffering, with your pain, and you feel the pain of all the other beings around you, 
all Buddhas are sitting in that place. They don't sit on the edge of the suffering, in the suburbs of the suffering. They sit in the downtown of suffering. Each of us is already there, but if you want to be a Buddha, you should sit in the middle of that feeling. We're already there, but we need to learn to sit in the middle of that feeling. If you sit in the middle of your own suffering patiently, which means lovingly, wishing yourself and others to be free of the suffering, while accepting it in its current manifestations, manifestation, soft mind arises, your mind and your heart are tenderized, and you develop the willingness to let go. When you sit patiently, you see more and more clearly that your suffering comes from holding on to what doesn't need to be gripped. Your body and mind don't need to be held. In fact, holding on is painful and makes you afraid. When you're afraid, when you're not afraid, you don't hold on to your body and mind. You just let them function. When you see that holding is a source of pain, you want to let go. Wanting to let go is not the same as letting go, but it prepares you for letting go. So basically you sit in the middle of your feelings, practicing patience, and a willingness arises, a wish to let go. As you keep dealing with things on an ongoing basis, patiently, compassionately, the time comes when there is letting go. What is let go of? The delusion that you're separate, that you have to hold on to yourself. You gradually see that you're not separate, and then you let go. Or you let go, and then you see that you're not separate. So the release, you know, that's why we can't use loving kindness as a strategy to release the heart. Like, I'll bring in loving kindness and that will make me feel better. Because that's a self-centered project. So he's talking about letting go here, but we could talk about letting go, freedom, and also in a, a real experience of love, of belonging, of caring. It, it happens when the conditions are right. But what we can do, what we can practice, you know, in terms of training, we can practice having the space where we can let things be, where we can trust the yucky feelings that we have, that that's what metta allows us to do, is be with experience. Because otherwise, the option, the other option is to be aversive, which means we're going to want to change it or fix it. We're going to get personally involved. And that's what Reb Anderson means when he's talking about taking a hold of our life. We grab the red-hot iron ball because it's hot. You know, and so we think, i got to do something. I can't just sit here with this red-hot iron ball. i got to do something. But there's nothing we can do without burning ourselves. The best thing to do is to know there's a red-hot iron ball. To be patient until something ceases, until letting go happens. But that's hard, you know, that because doubt comes in and, and helplessness and we think, oh, this can't be the way. But it's not helpless, it's not complacency. It's a very powerful, vivid expression of love. Like, I care enough about this life that I'm not going to pick that red-hot ball up again. And I don't care if the alternative is to be patient. 
I'm willing to be patient if the only other alternative is to pick up a red-hot iron ball to do something that doesn't work over and over and over again. Like the Buddha says in one of his teachings, you know, how many times <coughs> have we done this? How many times have we reacted in ways that have entangled our hearts? One of the real tortures of being on a longer retreat is the mind gets really sensitive, really sensitive. Even now, you know, after a couple of days, our minds are getting more sensitive. And uh, with that greater sensitivity, it's just so easy for the mind to pick up something and to tie itself in a knot. It can do it in 15 seconds. An old memory, you know, and the mind knows just how to kind of generate complicated, entangled emotional feelings, right? Or we can think about something trivial that seems harmless at first. Why did Spruce put that sign about no fires, you know? And then before long, we could have this whole complicated thing in our mind. Is wood stoves, are they really green or are they part of the problem and should be banned, you know? And like this endless, complicated, like got to get to the bottom of it or judgment of all those people who think they're green but are actually causing more pollution or, you know, whatever people might be doing with it. So we see how we how easy it is to pick that up, that red-hot ball. How many times have we done that today? And then when we're really sensitive, it may have taken 15 seconds to get the mind entangled. But it takes, because the body then responds to the mind's intensity, fixations, it takes the body a long time to unwind. You get a little storm going for a few minutes, and it can be hours before the whole system settles back down. And then over the course of days, you know, it's like literally, you know, just torturing yourself the way the mind picks something up over and over again. I mean, we do this in daily life, of course, but we see it in all its colors on retreat because of the sensitivity. We really see what we're doing to ourselves. And either it will drive us crazy or great compassion will be born. I'm willing to do anything but that again. Is there another way? a line from one of Rumi's poems. Heart, you are lost, but there's a path from lover to love, hidden but visible. Worlds blaze round you, don't shrink. The path is hidden, but yours. So let's just take a, a moment, let go of the words.
can this basic goodness create the space for this moment to be the way that it is, this body and mind. To relate without contention, to relate with kindness. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we have walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.